Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. It is Thursday. You know what that means? A long form interview with clean energy experts here to help you tune up your solar and clean energy career. Thank you so much for lending me your ears and your only non-renewable resource. That is your time. If you're new here, I expect you'll get a ton of value from this episode. So thanks in advance for giving us a chance to earn your attention. Well, today's clean energy expert has been on my list of must interview candidates for a little over two years since I first discovered his local energy rules podcast. He's an author, podcaster, and truly deep thinker. But for most of his daytime hours, John Farrell is co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and he directs the Energy Democracy Initiative. He's often billed as the guru of distributed energy. In fact, he was featured in the New York Times for his work showcasing how most states don't even need to look outside their borders to meet their electricity needs. As such, he's someone my dear friend and mentor, Bill Nussie, considers to be one of the leading voices for local energy and distributed energy, and I am stoked to finally have him here on the show. If you like these kinds of interviews, well, I hope you'll subscribe to the show as that'll ensure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Of course, you can always check out more than 450 additional founders, stories, and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, Solar Warriors, I'm really excited about today's conversation for a number of reasons, not the least of which is it's always fun when I get a fellow podcaster on the show because I know that the audio quality is going to be superior and the conversation tends to demonstrate two podcasters talking to one another, two folks that have thought about how to how to present topics. And today is certainly no exception. Uh, it is a an illustration of the point. My guest today, John Farrell, is the co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. He directs their Energy Democracy Initiative. He has been called by some the guru of distributed energy. And he also hosts the Local Energy Rules podcast, which for what it's worth, if you have not yet subscribed, I am sure that by the end of this podcast, you will be compelled to do so. A couple of quick things. John has been highlighted by such notable mediums as the New York Times for his writing around democratizing the electricity system in the United States for interactive maps on solar grid parity, community renewable energy, and his data-rich presentations on local renewable energy. We're going to talk about all of that and more. First, let me welcome John Farrell to Suncast. Thanks so much for having me, Nico. Man, it's a pleasure. It really is. It's it's not often that I get to host a fellow podcaster who also is a deep thinker. Most recently, I had uh, our good friend and, and mutual colleague in the podcasting and energy exploration space, Bill Nussie. Uh, I'll just give a hat tip to Bill because 
his two-part episode with you is is instructive for kind of the, the topic that we're talking about, of course. He, he admits that he took the term local energy from a lot of the work that you guys do. Before we jump down the rabbit hole of exactly what you do, I'd love to know how you first got exposed to the idea that there was a need for so energy democracy, as you've termed it, uh, but more specifically, clean energy or the energy sector as a category. Can you tell me that story? Yeah, I wish it was more exciting, frankly, but I, I was in graduate school and I did a master's in public policy, kind of always knew that I was interested in you know, legislation and policy and, and public life as an approach to solving any kind of problem, like what's the power of the public that we can, can, can bring to bear. Uh, and I just had a, a fantastic energy policy class. The, the professor was just really good at kind of helping us understand that this stuff is challenging. I remember specifically, we talked about like the acid rain regulations, for example, on power plants and how like, you know, it was an example of, uh, of the government what came up with a policy, but gave the industry flexibility to address it. And that it led to both really inexpensive ways to solve the immediate problem, but also these like underlying longer term issues because of the way that that utilities decided to solve the problem largely by switching where they got their coal from rather than switching to do uh, other you know pollution controls and that kinds of thing and i still remember we had this fellow come in to do a presentation he was an expert in nuclear power but he wanted to explain a little bit about how the electricity system worked before he got into it. And he described it as this system of, he said, it's like a fleet of bicycles riding in the same direction, all connected by bungee cords. <laughs> and, you know, they've all got to stay wow. at the same speed, uh, but they don't have any way to like communicate effectively with one another. It was just, it was just such a rich metaphor for how this system actually works. It has given me such a level of appreciation for electrical engineers who keep this system running. Um, but it also just made me fascinated with like, okay, well, what, what is it that we can do? How can we impact the system that is in some ways really sensitive and fragile, but in other ways, so central to the way that our lives work. And so I, I, I kept that with me uh, as through my graduate school work, which I left energy behind for a while. And then I stumbled into the Institute for Local Self-Reliance when I was looking for work uh, I asked for an informational interview, kind of like, hey, you know, I read your website. There's some interesting stuff that you guys are doing. Uh, you know, there's one guy I remember that I talked to there who was working on like uh, baseball stadiums. So like this whole issue of like, you know, major league owners asking, you know, trying to extract millions of dollars from cities to say, like, you know, we're going to move the team or you build us a stadium. And his whole thing was on like building the stadium in a way that was in service of the community. It was this really interesting and novel approach to this issue about like local control and local economic connections. And so I was like, oh, you know, this is interesting. And they said, well, we've got a job open right now. Why don't you just interview for that? It's on energy policy. And I said, okay, sure. I, um, and I got the job uh, without really knowing a whole lot about their perspective around energy, but understanding that it was in a field that I thought was interesting. And I was like, you know, still thinking back on that graduate class that I had and thinking, you know what, maybe this is going to be more interesting than I expect, but at least it's something that I can do. Uh, and it has health insurance there and it's go. a permanent job and that's exciting. So <laughs> that is, uh, it was a soft, it was a soft entry anyway, uh, certainly without as much intentionality as I might've wished. Well, you, you may, uh, you know, you may offer that it was not with that, with a great deal of intentionality, but as I recall from a previous conversation, you actually did a lot of interviewing 
and this was just one of the interviews. It was something like 50 interviews that you went through in, in your search for a job. Is that right? Oh gosh. Yeah. I had a spreadsheet where I had kind of like two important columns, one on either end. One was like places that I'd found that seemed like they would be interesting and in alignment with my values and interests. And then the other end was a list of people that I knew. And I was hoping to like connect the dots between those as I was going out and having coffee and buying people lunch and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, I did do a lot of thinking and trying to like find a place that I thought would, would have good alignment. I, I, I can't, couldn't have imagined at the time that it would have been such a good fit. And frankly, even I still remember even a, a year or two after I started at the Institute, I was still like, I just don't know if I totally understand how this works. Um, <laughs> you know, wh- like That's how their amazing. approach is different from the people who are out there doing like environmental advocacy or just clean energy advocacy. Like we really do come at this differently. And, you know, I can talk more about that. Um, but it, it took me a while to really wrap my head around what, Institute for Local Self-Reliance really meant and why that was so different from the Mm. people that I often ended up working with in the energy space. I appreciate the juxtaposition. I also want to just edify the, you know, when I said in the beginning that you provide data-rich presentations, it is emblematic of how you went around about your job search. Like, Like the adage says, how you do anything is how you do everything. My experience with the context and the content that you bring to the our you know, our broader energy transition conversation is that it is very focused on a particular community, uh, that being a local community in particular focus. The lens is through Minnesota, but it's by no means focused on Minnesota alone. Uh, and it's very data rich. So, and it, and it comes out in your podcast. It comes out in obviously the the various publications that you all bring forth. For those who are unfamiliar, I think it's a good opportunity now for us to talk about what Institute for Local Self-Reliance exists to do. And I'd love as a part of that explanation to dig into a phrase that you all use or terminology that you use uh, called energy democracy. What does it mean? Who is it for? How is it different from the way we might otherwise think about how the energy transition affects us? You know, again, I feel like it's taken me a lot of practice to learn how to explain what the Institute for Local Self-Reliance is about. Um, i I just have to give a lot of credit to my mentor, David Morris, one of our co-founders, sort of beating it into me over and over again. But, you know, we've we've been able to, I think, at this point, summarize it fairly quickly as, you know, the purpose of our organization is to build local power to fight corporate control over the economy. So it's very broad. It's really saying we see in the American economy a problem when we've concentrated so much power in large corporations, whether that's in monopoly utility companies or big tech companies or big waste haulers. In all of these different spaces, we have these ways of doing business, these essential services in our economy, and we can do them and we can operate them in a local fashion, in a decentralized fashion that will be better for everybody. It will be a more robust and competitive economy. The wages and benefits and more jobs will be created uh, if we do it that way. And, and so we look at that specifically in the energy sector as well. You know, we talk about it as energy democracy because it's not just about clean energy, although that's certainly very important. But the idea is this, you know, sense of self-determination for communities. Like if a community wants to do more clean energy, we think they should have the right to make the decisions to have control of the levers to decide where their energy comes from and how they want to develop it, whether that's in big power plants or in little rooftop solar arrays. 
and so that's kind of the core focus. And, and I would say as part of that, which is really important and is maybe not something we've always thought of, it, but I think is increasingly important these days is thinking about how does that also address the historical harms, the way that communities have been marginalized in the past, whether it's folks that have had to live near a polluting power plant, you know, people of color in particular who have suffered from that. Like, can we address that as well in thinking about how we address the structure of our energy system in a way that feeds back into that larger goal? Let's build local power. Let's give communities the chance to decide where their energy future is going to be. You described the concept of energy democracy as sort of like a public Costco for energy. Can you help unpack maybe that that imagery and the concept of energy democracy as it pertains to the work that you do? Yeah, I think, you know, a Costco is this place that tries to, it, you know, it is a community of shoppers, right? You have to, you have to become a member to participate in it. Uh, and the idea is that they go out and try to get things that people want and to negotiate a discount on it while, when they do that. And to me, it's, it's a microcosm of this idea of collective action, right? That we are stronger if we do something together. And I think that's a really core idea behind energy democracy is to say, as individuals in the energy sector, especially in the way that we've designed energy markets in the United States, you have very little power. I mean, you can, if you have the wherewithal, put solar on your own rooftop. But if the utility has structured the rules to make that difficult, you don't really have any way to solve that. And in fact, in most places, you have no choice. There is one utility, and they're the ones who decide whether or not it's going to be easy or not. But if we're able to work together, whether it's like Solar United Neighbors, I'm on the board of this organization, they do like buying cooperatives. So now it's like instead of one person going out shopping for solar, it's 20 or 50 all at the same time. Uh, so you can even do the collective action within the market structure but they and ILSR and others are also focused on this idea of how do we change the rules to make it easier for collective action to happen? So, you know, how do we break up the power of those big utility companies to allow for like community solar policies like we have in Minnesota or Maryland or Oregon or community choice energy like Massachusetts or California? Yeah. Can you give an example? We talked a little bit prior to pressing record of folks that against all odds are leveraging the power of collective action to spur initiatives in their own states, even where there's not partic particularly conducive policy or uh, utility friendliness. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's been really rewarding about my work is to try to tell those stories, is to go out and, and to talk to people. Um, you mentioned the Local Energy Rules podcast, which at the time was just an experiment because my colleague was doing podcasting. He's like, you should try it. Yeah. And it turns out it's just really been amazing to reach out and connect with folks who are trying to do this at the local level. Um, you know, you get you take for example, I introduced, uh, sorry, interviewed this fellow Mason Rolf. He is a relative. He's a young guy. He's in his twenties. Uh, he lives out side of Seattle, Washington, and he's trying to do community solar. You know, he was inspired by like the community supported agriculture and you know farmers markets and kind of things like, hey, people come together here, you know, they can support a local farmer. Uh, you know, it's a mission driven kind of thing, it's, but it's also a benefit for them, the local food, the knowing where your food is grown, all of that kind of stuff. And he said, why can't we do that with solar? Um, and Washington state, by the way, is the policy is terrible. They did have a, a incentive for community solar at one point, but it's basically yeah. expired. Uh, there's no kind of like framework or rules that makes it easy to do community solar. 
And yet he's kind of against all odds managed to like leverage these relationships with like farmers markets and community supported agriculture to get people to figure out how to invest together to do community solar. Working, He's working with like no, local nonprofits, local businesses, but also just individuals. Uh, and he's put together a couple of uh, community solar projects already. And, um, and, and I think maybe the most important thing and the most important lesson from that interview, as is with so many of the ones that I do, is it's not just this story of overcoming that. You know, I remember there was another one, the Monadnock Food Co-op in New Hampshire. Same story. Terrible environment. Managed to make a community solar project happen through a food co-op where they, again, already had this sense of collective action. But in both cases, they also turned after they had done those projects and said, okay, how can we make this easier? How can we go and change the environment to make it easier so that if we want to do this again and again, it doesn't always have to be this uphill struggle. And so that's the story that I really like to tell is how do we combine that like entrepreneurial spirit with this idea of let's go out and make it easier for others to follow in our footsteps. John, I love what you said about the entrepreneurial spirit. You know, the state of Minnesota, the broader context of the community solar, of utility scale solar, of the energy transition is a bit of a microcosm of the entrepreneurial spirit embodied in, in energy and often the tension that exists between what the utility wants to do, what uh, large scale players, the corporate side of our renewables business and the local side of our renewables business, uh, how they all play well together. I don't expect that folks listening maybe have followed closely how Minnesota has evolved as a state, being one of the very early states for community solar, as an example. Would you give some examples of how policy has evolved and even how you all have been able to be involved in it and influencing it in your home state of Minnesota that other states can learn from? Yeah. And I should just emphasize too, like Minnesota happens to be where I live. And it was one of the two places where ILSR had offices, even though we work nationally. Um, but we really did get right into the weeds when we first opened the office here in the early 1990s. Now this predates me. So I'm now telling the history on behalf of others. But one of the early things that we did that I think actually is just sort of indicative of the way that Minnesota has been approaching energy and thinking about it is the nuclear power plants for Excel Energy had been operating for 30 or 40 years, and they had run out of room to store the nuclear waste in the 1990s. And they were asking the state for permission to expand storage for the dry casks that had the spent fuel. The environmental community organized around that. We have one of the best in the country, in my opinion, like nonprofit communities. Um, there's a really strong philanthropic tradition here, McKnight Foundation uh, and others from the founders of 3M. So there's a really robust nonprofit community that's been focused on environmental advocacy and clean energy for a long time. And they organized and said, okay, well, we're going to get Excel to have to cut a deal for this storage. So we're gonna, they're going to have to pay a fee for each cask of spent nuclear fuel uh, that will go into a fund to support renewable development. And they're also going to have to accept a mandate. I think it was one of the first mandates in the country, maybe other than Iowa, to install wind power, uh, to experiment with wind energy, which in the mid-1990s was not a big thing. What happened from that was it created this fund that started to give to support small, interesting pilot projects uh, that around renewable energy. Um, it has been used uh, over the decades to support like Minnesota-made solar panels to provide incentives for individuals to install solar on their homes, uh, to do uh, like district energy systems, 
to test out things like super energy retrofits. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that that fund has been used for uh, that have given us some like practical experience in the state with clean energy stuff. And the mandate was also really important because as it turns out, it had two parts to it. It was written really intelligently. It was like, you go out and get, I think it was a couple hundred megawatts of wind power. And if it's cost effective, you have to double it. And that was the that was really the brilliant stroke in that legislation. And we we not myself, but at the institute was involved in in that. Um, and what happened then is that Excel went out, bought wind power, found it was inexpensive, and bought some more wind power, and really gave birth to the commercial wind industry in the upper Midwest. Between that and and some policy decisions in Iowa, that has you know remained really strong. And Excel Energy has. I, as much wind energy as almost any utility out there, uh, you know, utilities in Iowa also big leaders on this. Minnesota, though, was also really interested in community-based clean energy. And so we passed a law in the 90s called Community-Based Energy Development. And it wasn't an incentive program, but it restructured how wind projects would get paid. It basically front-loaded the payments for wind projects so that community-based installations, which had harder time like getting financing and paying it back, could also participate in this expansion of wind energy. So basically just said, well, because you know your loan debt for your wind project is usually in the first 10 years, we'll have higher payments in the first 10 years to help you pay off your debt uh, and then lower payments in the last 10 years. And so we also saw tens, maybe even hundreds of megawatts of community wind projects where there were a whole bunch of farmers that came together and invested together wind farms and sold that electricity to the utility and they were enabled by this early legislation. So we've even I've 20, 30 years ago, of a community wind farm. This is the first utterance I've heard of the term community wind. That's, a, that's, I mean, it seems, it seems self-evident. I mean, I will not bore you with the weeds of like the tax and like financing policy and securities policy that make it challenging to do. Uh, we've written about it. It's on our website. In fact, I, and <laughs> I have a couple of podcast interviews in the early days with some of the folks who have been able to do community-based wind projects but it's just amazing. I mean, it really is amazing when you think about it. Like the people who tend to host wind turbines in our country are farmers and rural landowners. They're right. always looking for ways to invest in things that give them more stable income. And yeah. a community wind project is as good as an agriculture investment, sometimes even better because it kind of runs in any weather, a wind turbine, whereas uh, the weather can really wreak havoc on your agricultural practice. So there are some just that just some amazing and brilliant entrepreneurs, you know, farmers who came up with these creative ways to do community-based wind projects all across the upper Midwest um, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, you know, the thing that's interesting about wind for farmers is that it still allows them a fairly large swath of arable land that they can continue to cultivate. Many are doing both wind and solar on site in the Midwest these days, but uh, you know, solar takes the land out of commission. It's often a great way to rotate the the land or to give it another new use. But but wind, by and large, can be dropped into existing. I come from a farming family, and you know, it's easy to see how they can be dropped into existing plots. And yeah, they they take up a portion of uh, of acreage with access roads and and the towers. But it's much less so than the solar would. I to this day feel like we have. I mean, logically shifted to focus on solar because it's inexpensive and so low maintenance, mm-hmm. you know, and it can kind of perform the same everywhere, right? You don't have mm-hmm. to worry as much about uh, what the resource looks like. But I really wish that there was still as much excitement about community-based wind as there is about community solar. 
Yeah, that it seems to make sense to me. And it, uh, and I think you're right that it unfortunately comes down to policies that can support it, which is work that you all do. Uh, I want to talk a bit about some of the tensions that exist that maybe are not obvious to the average participant in the market. And it's between entities that we wouldn't necessarily th- think are at odds. Uh, although the, the second example I'll give many believe that we're, we're often at odds. The first is the tension that exists between what I'll call broadly the nonprofit sector focused on policy advocacy and the associations that themselves are meant to align interests, of which there are many. There are state and national level, uh, presumably ILSR would be working alongside them. My sense is that you often find yourself at odds with them. Can we talk a bit about the the tensions there? Yeah, I would say most of our relationships with folks in the industry are pretty good because there's a general recognition that the advocacy work that we do, the policies that we develop and analyze in favor are ones that will be of benefit to the industry, right? Like the whole idea is we're still trying to grow the clean energy economy. We want more solar. We want more wind uh, to be built. But there are sometimes, you know, just as a specific example, you know, in Minnesota, one of the policy structures around community solar, when we passed that law in 2013, was we said, okay, the projects have to be located within one county of the people who are participating in it, of the people who are subscribing to the project. And the idea was let's, you know, we wanted some sort of like physical connection, some, you know, proximity between the people who are subscribing and the community solar. So that it's not just like a solar project, but it's community-based, right? Like it's supposed to be somewhere you can see it and drive by it and understand like, hey, I'm a part of this. What's happened over the past few years is that there have been a lot of community solar projects then developed near the Twin Cities metropolitan area, because that's where you got lots of people who want to subscribe to solar to the extent that it's hard harder, uh, significantly harder now to find a good place to put a solar project, whether that's finding the open space to put it in to some degree, but also like finding a good place on the grid to connect it because there are so many other projects. I mean, there's over 800 megawatts of community solar, um, which is a significant amount. I mean, that's about the same as the peak energy demand for the city of Minneapolis, uh, which has about 400,000 people. So, you know, it's, there's a significant amount of solar now in our metropolitan area, community solar developers and, and their Industry associations say, you know, well, we want to get rid of that contiguous county requirement. We want to say we can build it anywhere in Excel Energy's territory and still serve those same urban customers. I think there's probably some people in the nonprofit advocacy community who are like, yep, that's fine. Let's get rid of it. You know, the more solar, the better. And then there are those of us who are kind of like, well, there's still something in the principle of how we do these kinds of projects. And also, we haven't really seen in the program thus far a lot of like infill projects, you know, people doing rooftop projects in the metropolitan area that do community solar. So there's a little bit of that tension in terms of the value of like, who are we trying to serve? Are we able to do this in a way that like, you know, as we pitch so often in in the solar world, right? This is, these panels can go right on the top of existing buildings, right? It has lower environmental impact than other kinds of clean energy resources, but we haven't found it with community solar that we're necessarily able to drive them to build those projects in that manner. And there's a lot in there in terms of compensation and whatnot that's challenging, but uh, there's definitely a tension. I think one thing that that I've identified as a key differentiator in the way we think about organizations like ILSR, perhaps SIA, or some of the local sort of state chapters for, for solar and storage, is that the associations are formed specifically to help provide advantage and benefit economic opportunity for the corporation that is a member, right? 
uh, you, you could be a local member, you could be a Sunrun or Sonova, and the association's mandate is to help those businesses establish a policy that, that gives them runway and life and economic opportunity, right? So they would be in favor of removing the one county rule, for example, because that unnecessarily, in their view, perhaps limits the opportunity for their members to thrive. ILSR is less attached to the individual solar company's ability to thrive if it removes the opportunity for the consumer to thrive and get access to clean energy, i.e. your advocacy is more on the side of consumers rather than producers of the electricity. Is that accurate? Yeah. And I think there's another way to look at that too. And this is a tension that we have both with some folks in the industry, as well as with some other folks in the nonprofit advocacy community, uniquely as ILSR, is that focus on energy democracy, as we talked about earlier, is about this idea of changing the rules to support more local control and collective action. And that necessarily means that we want to break up the power of the incumbent utility. And you have a lot of solar companies that sell solar to utilities and they sell solar to consumers and they want both of those things to happen. You've got a lot of nonprofits who look at the clean energy transition and they say, we don't want to mess with the utility. They have so much power. We just want to like co-opt them. You know, we want to change their incentives so that they do what we want. And frankly, I see that as giving handouts to folks who don't deserve it. I mean, the industry has developed <laughs> in a, in a yep. it's a very conservative model. Uh, you know, we are responsible to some degree with the way utilities act. We created these monopoly structures, but I just see it as anathema to our opportunity. You know, there's $360 billion a year in electricity sales in the United States. And with rooftop and solar and other distributed energy, there's an opportunity to shift a huge amount of that money just like back into communities, into the pockets of consumers. And so the idea that we would let utilities still get to hold on to that, even though they're not even putting the capital at risk to do it, is crazy to me. And so that is a huge point of tension for us with some of our allies is that we're always looking at how do we do policy that doesn't just advance clean energy, but that like prize the fingers of the utility mm. shareholder off of the <laughs> pot of gold at the bottom. Well, you know, the, Bill Nussie talks about in his book, Freeing Energy, uh, and he talked about it in an interview with you, this dissonance that the utility has where they're very happy to have a guaranteed rate of profit, uh, a guaranteed customer base effectively. What you're describing rocks the boat on both accounts. And the, the specific dichotomy that he points out and that I think you've probably had a lot of experience with is that utilities just have this massive imbalance between R&D, their budget that they apply to R&D, i.e. innovation, and their lobby budget, i.e. how much they ask the government to give them to support their interests, which is what, which is our budget, by the way, because we as ratepayers give them the profits wherein they have a lobbying budget, wherein they can ask the government to protect them from our interests. <laughs> can you give an example specifically to how utilities are unprepared to take on the kind of innovation that we need in the energy transition? I actually have two examples that I'd love to give. Uh, the first one was from a time when I, I was invited down to Tucson by some of the folks there who are working on clean energy did give a presentation. And um, I did a public presentation and then they had a smaller group of like community leaders. And I gave the same presentation there and I kind of talked about, you know, the problem is that you have this utility company that kind of has control over the system and that you need more flexibility and ability to act uh, as a community and, and to act collectively. Um, and this was at a time when when the utility Tucson Electric Power and other Arizona utilities were kind of 
uh, clamping down on net metering and finding ways to make it harder for consumers to do solar because it had become very economical in Arizona at that time to do solar uh, compared to buying electricity from the utility. I didn't know that there was a Tucson Electric Power employee in the audience for that yeah. second talk. They didn't tell me he was going to be there. Um, but as when I finished speaking, they turned uh, as though they had planned it. And they're like, do you want to respond to this fellow from Tucson Electric Power? Wow. I had this moment of like, wow, okay. I don't think I said anything crazy, but I'm going to yeah, be fascinated to see back, what, yeah. what he's going to say. <laughs> and what I thought was really fascinating was there's a, sort of two things. One was he didn't contest with anything that I'd said about the problems mm -hmm. of the market structure. Rather, what he said was, you can't expect us to do something differently. He was like, we come to, to work every day at the utility to do the thing that we did yesterday. Like our incentive is to be conservative, is to provide like reliable, consistent, you know, service. We keep the lights on. Yeah, we keep the lights on. And he even gave an example of like in the late 90s uh, when there had been some, you know, restructuring in the electricity market, they had tried to do some interesting things and they hadn't panned out very well, which you might have expected from a company that doesn't have a lot of like entrepreneurial experience. Uh, and the Public <laughs> Utilities Commission had kind of said, you're not even going to get paid for that investment that you made or you're not going to oh, get goodness. a profit on it. So, oh, yeah. you know, that slap on the hand for trying to innovate. Exactly, exactly. So the, I, you know, the incentives are wrong. Uh, you have created sort of this ossified institution, which is not by its nature going to be innovative. And I think just as another illustration of that, uh, when you talk about the tension with lobbying, Pacific Gas and Electric, to me, is a perfect illustration of how this entire model has gone horribly wrong. So the wildfires that have been caused in California recently are largely the result of underfunded maintenance. And the reason that the utility underfunded maintenance was so they could put money into dividends for shareholders. And this is fairly well documented now through the different court cases and whatnot, that they essentially said, we'd rather spend our money lobbying, for example, to fight community choice energy and giving rewards to our shareholders than spending on basic maintenance, even though in the end, it turned out to be explosively problematic. And what blows my mind is that Pacific Gas Electric still has a public franchise and a public monopoly. Like, they, it's essentially a slap on the wrist. Yes, I know some shareholders were cleaned out uh, to some degree, but the, the state has agreed to essentially cover their losses in future wildfires to like provide them public insurance for a private company that has done this horrible job at a, at a moment when there is so much opportunity in the energy sector to do innovative and creative things. And we leave these, you know, aging elephants in charge of our system. Yeah. And for this noted for the second time, in a generation. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's not even a new problem with PG&E. It's not a new problem with many of the utilities, candidly. You know, I think both of those examples illustrate pretty well the, the misalignment of interests and incentives, as you put it, that really characterize the nature of the fight. I'll call it a fight. But the nature of the fight that we as entrepreneurs and we as folks interested in policy that supports the entrepreneurial spirit have to engage in. And nowhere is that more important than on the local level. Are there good examples of current policies that we as an industry should be following where they're facing headwinds, maybe unnecessarily, maybe necessarily, and ILSR is doing work there? I think there are sort of two fronts right now that are pretty active in the renewable energy space, the clean energy space that I think are really worth investigating closely and following closely. One is this idea about 
local, again, following this thread of local self-determination. So whether that's communities talking about taking over the electric utility or the like the powers that are unlocked by community choice energy laws, where then all of a sudden my city and my neighboring city can pool together and go out. You know, it's the Costco model, right? The enabling yeah. of collective action to go out and shop around and find the clean energy resources that your community wants. It's not, you know, neither of those is a panacea. Some of them are really hard to do. You've got to get governance right. You have to figure out the financials. You have to figure out operations. There's a lot of complicated things, but we know that cities and the public sector run all sorts of things very efficiently, you know, like water utilities and, you know, there's 2000 electric utilities. Like we know we can do this. And so one of the things is just figuring out how do we get communities to try to flex their muscles of like trying to do what they can do to advance this uh, and to work in partnership with the industry. Cause frankly, there's, it's like a bunch of win-wins, right? Like getting, getting things out of the hands of that conservative uh, utility and into the hands of folks who are willing to think creatively about it is going to open up huge amounts of doors. And it's, it's a challenge for the industry, right? Because to show your support for that is to signal to the utility, like, maybe we don't think that you being in charge is the greatest idea. And, you know, of course, you're still doing business with the utility. We actually just fielded a survey uh, that we're wrapping up our report on of solar developers. And that was one of the tensions they mentioned consistently, which is like, we have all these issues with the utility, but we have no choice. Like, we have to work with them. And so it's not really to our advantage to create, you know, a kerfuffle, uh, if you will, uh, with the utility. The other thing is just, you know, and this is obviously really big in California right now and clean energy is this whole notion around like net metering and solar compensation policy. And I have a Twitter thread on it that I wrote a couple of Fridays ago. I always get my inspiration apparently to write Twitter threads at like Friday at 4.30 p.m. when everyone's signing off. So no one reads them. But the whole idea, I think here, and, and uh, Sammy Roth in the LA Times has also written, I think, pretty well about this. But it's, it's I feel like we're always missing one little piece here, which is, the whole notion of talking about how much we pay people to do solar and picking specifically on solar customers around this idea of like cost shifts or whatever subsidies, it's, it's really all an invention of the utility company. And it's all comes back to that idea of how the business model works for them, which again, like that is a public choice. We have structured the utility industry this way. We can change the rules uh, if we want to. And so my problem with it is that we spend so much time getting into the weeds. And I'm guilty of this too, by the way. I was heavily involved in Minnesota's passage of its value of solar policy to like, how do you calculate the value of solar to the um, electric grid, to society, to the environment and all of that. And the, the problem is that we really need to rethink this and we need to, we need to be way more strategic in how we approach this. Instead of like saying, okay, the Public Utilities Commission is going to have a docket or the legislature is going to have a debate about the value of solar. Let's dive in and like defend solar. We got to take a step back and say, why are we having this conversation in the first place? Why are we letting utility shareholders set the, you know, create the battlefield and then we go fight on their battlefield? Why aren't we asking the more important question, which is we know that rooftop solar is amazing. Like this is a way that anybody can generate electricity. We use federal incentives, tax credits to support it. We give sales tax breaks to do solar. We give property tax breaks for people to put solar on their homes. We have all these ways that with public money, we've said, get people to do solar. So why in the hell in the electricity business would we change the compensation to dial back all of those public incentives? Like it's, it's completely crazy. And so what we need to be saying is, okay, the utility company obviously has a problem here. 
And they are willing to trot out like low-income advocates on their behalf to say that this is a problem because they've narrowed the, our vision to solar customers make money, what happens to other customers? But the bigger question ought to be, solar customers have collectively put in billions of dollars in capital into our grid system to improve it, to make it cleaner, to make it better. How do we use that? So I, in this Twitter thread, I actually I signed it off by pointing out that the 1.3 million customers in California that have installed solar have collectively spent probably somewhere in 30 to $40 billion of their own money to build clean energy generation, which is equal to the entire market cap of PG&E. I mean, it is unbelievable how much private individuals have been willing to spend to support our electricity system. We should design our utilities and our like electricity markets to capture and make the most of that. Like, Get people to put in solar facing west so that it works in the late evening. Help them install storage so that it supports local grid infrastructure and substations. Like we have this enormous opportunity and we are frittering it away because we are fighting with the utility about whether or not we should keep paying people who are bringing their own money to the table to give us stuff that's really awesome. I wish that by the time this was published, we would be celebrating a win in California. At the time of recording, we're still a few days away from what we all expect will be uh, a setback in the California market. I hope I'm wrong about that. And I can maybe redact this and in the new year when it publishes, but it's, it's a, it's remarkable. That was really well said by the way. And it's remarkable. The narrative that is by and large being paid for by incumbents uh, and, and proffered across a large swath of society who just doesn't know better how much traction this idea is getting that uh, we're leaving people behind by, by voting for clean energy. I would just add too that there are really legitimate concerns about distributional equity, like about low-income folks, about you know the difference between people who can afford to go solar and folks who can't. And I just think it's important that when we approach this issue, we say, how do we address that in a way that doesn't stop people from going solar, but it lets everybody have access to it, to the solar economy? I mean, this is this is our like moment of innovation. Like we have a once in a generation opportunity to like see this transition through in a way that really changes how the economy works for folks that taps into a whole bunch of different opportunities uh, around like addressing racial inequality, uh, addressing income inequality and, and what have you. And so I, it just really bothers me that we allow utility companies and their shareholders to like be the spokespeople for, for equity uh, when at the same time, like, and, and you know, there's been great coverage by folks like the Center for Biological Diversity on this. These are the utility companies that accepted billions of dollars in bailout funds from the federal government from COVID and shut off like a million customers in the last 18 months from electricity service. Like they have no, they have no moral standing to speak to us on behalf of folks like that. We do have an obligation as solar advocates to make sure that we are thinking about how this policy, how this industry affects everybody, but the utility has no moral standing to oppose us in talking about how this plays out. Hey, you know, it's becoming commonplace to hear that energy storage is the key to deploying renewables at scale. But if you've tried to put storage on a commercial solar project ever, then you realize it's easier said than done until now. Look, I've seen many energy storage solutions for commercial buildings as a solar project developer in my 15 years in the industry, but 
Yada Energy's storage product just scratches that developer itch of fit, function, and ease to install. Yada's PV-coupled ecosystem of Solar Plus storage solutions integrates seamlessly right behind the solar panel. In fact, it elegantly replaces the need for a ballast as it nests right into the racking on a flat roof install. Even better, Yada's integrated storage technology can enable up to 60% more solar to be employed on commercial buildings. With commercial buildings consuming 35% of electricity, that means that Yada is finally helping business owners and solar installers alike make a serious dent in the commercial sector's massive carbon emissions. Yada Energy is poised to meet the growing demands of electrification by maximizing solar plus storage without taking up additional valuable commercial real estate for your customers. To find out how Yada Energy can bring storage to your CNI rooftop project, visit mysuncast.com forward slash Yada. That's Y-O-T-T-A. Yada Energy, an elegant and revolutionary approach to solar plus storage. Are you in the Massachusetts solar market? Well, if you are, I have an exclusive partnership opportunity I'd like to talk with you about related to the Massachusetts Smart Energy Program. Please feel free to email me, nico at mysuncast.com, if the following applies. We're looking for folks with system sizes between 5 kilowatts and 500 kilowatts in the Eversource and National Grid service areas. We can help convert disqualified leads and turn them into revenue. We're looking for turnkey EPC services and success fees can be paid at agreed upon milestones. We'll help you convert unqualified solar leads and turn them into revenue. No credit or utility bill required, and we can work on all kinds of different properties. Small commercial, rental property, places of worship, schools, multifamily condos, strip malls. Yeah, all of those places that you have heretofore been unable to put solar because they're unqualified or even residential leads that have DQ'd. Maybe you're a lead gen provider or know someone all these types of projects we'd love to help you with and we can give you more information if you want to reach out to me at nico at mysuncast.com and mention massachusetts smart energy program in the subject line you bring in the um you know the the policy efforts by the current administration as an example of how utilities are <laughs> have no moral standing and they also have uh they've mis misappropriated funding and and stand they're just really two-faced in the way that in many cases they approach the this situation there are a number of policies that we are all following and that you all are advocating on behalf of the consumer on behalf of local energy reliance in particular let's talk a little bit about some of the programs that you're working on right now to empower local energy and we'll start with the 30 million solar homes how have several elements of that program, 30 Million Solar Homes campaign, found their way into the Build Back Better plan? Well, I'll just say, like, I feel enormously grateful for all of the folks who really found it inspiring, the idea of 30 Million Solar Homes. Um, it was in some ways like an off-the-cuff idea a year and a half ago to just talk about and, and me trying to struggle with thinking about like, how is the work that I'm doing relevant in the wake of COVID as a Minneapolis resident in the wake of the murder of George Floyd? And it really was, I think, a chance for us to say, okay, well, we've been doing this advocacy around local and distributed energy for a long time. What meaning does it still have? And it was really amazing to, to work with the different partners that we've had and to think about, we can use rooftop solar as a way to address some of these issues. Like, Solar creates a lot of jobs. Solar can be done in a way that 
allows people who have been locked out of the energy economy to have access. And so, you know, one of the headline pieces to it was fixing something that I've cared about for a decade, which is the federal tax incentives for solar. Uh, tax incentives are great. They're good policy and they're very easy to pass because you don't have to appropriate any money. And they absolutely stink for anybody who doesn't have tax liability. And we've known that forever. You know, we've known that half of the American population was never going to be able to really use a tax credit to go solar. And the legislation, the Build Back Better legislation would finally change that. It would make the solar tax credits refundable. It would maybe even make them direct pay, which is to say that you would be able to get them right when you're installing your solar and not just in April at tax time, uh, which would be hugely helpful uh, for communities that have not had access to solar before uh, to be able to access that same incentive. And, and also, there are some bonus incentives that specifically target low-income communities or projects that you know serve affordable housing or low-income residents. So I, I think the Build Back Better is like the best reframing of federal incentives for solar that I've seen in my lifetime. It's really exciting. Uh, and I'm really hopeful that it will pass because even, even just that one centerpiece of federal policy and approach to solar. And there's so many other things that are happening at the Department of Energy, the incentives under the USDA for the Rural Energy for America program and what have you. But that that would really change things in part because what it says, the signal it sends to the solar industry is we've got your back. If you want to go and figure out ways to invest and help low-income folks, we have a way that you can do that now. We've got the tools. You're not going to have to work against the structure that we have to like figure out financial innovations to serve low-income folks, you can just go do it and we will get the money to you to make sure that it can happen. And that's what excites me is that there are a lot of really, I think, like mission-oriented, like uh, motivated people in the solar industry who want to figure out how to do this, how to serve low-income folks, how to get solar to everybody. And they've had to, like, they've had headwinds this entire time they've been doing it. So uh, that's that's the most exciting piece to me. Well, you guys did, I mean, you made a big push Earlier in the year, in the summer, you published this report. You had over 300 organizations, businesses and you know, faith organizations, public health organizations, et cetera, that backed a letter to Congress urging them to adopt the 30 million solar homes policy that, that we're discussing. I would encourage folks to go read that report and we'll link to it. It's called The National Impact of 30 Million Solar Homes. But I want to highlight a couple of things that come from it before we move to the next program. Uh, I'm just going to read here from the report. In addition to creating 1.77 million new solar jobs and reducing energy bills by $69 billion, the report found putting this policy into place over five years would eliminate global warming pollution equivalent to closing 48 coal-burning power plants and taking 42 million cars off the road for a year, would increase new solar capacity by an astounding 151 gigawatts, and it would power the equivalent of 20 million households in marginalized communities with local, reliable solar power. That's quite quite a legacy that that you've, you're you're going to have there uh, in the policy as if it if it gets you know if it finds its way into legislation as we all hope that it will. So I wanted to give uh, huge kudos to you and the team for the work that you've done there. It's it's remarkable, really, truly is. Speaking of reports, and I think you alluded a little bit to this earlier, you've got another report forthcoming about the barriers of solar development. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. One of the things that we've been thinking about for a number of years and was sort of brought to our attention by folks that we've worked with who are really um, focused on community solar is we would do this annual scorecard. It's called the Community Power Scorecard, and it, it's on our website, and it, it links to this interactive map as well where we'd score states and say, okay, what 
policies have you enacted to enable the, the sort of energy democracy economy? What have you enacted that allows for this kind of collective action? And what people were telling us was, hey, this is all well and good. We're really glad that you do this. We think it's important that you highlight the policy framework that that matters. But states pass good policy and the utilities totally screw us anyway. Like there's implementation problems. Now, states also make policy mistakes. So it's not just the utilities fault when stuff goes wrong. Uh, you know, and some of, as solar developers know, a lot of what goes on too is has to do with like the local municipality, right? There's permitting and zoning and other rules like that that you have to confront. But what we felt that there was a story potentially here of like, what is going on behind the scenes, behind the policy fight once solar companies are actually trying to make solar happen. And so we said, let's do a national survey. Let's try to get solar developers to take an hour out of their day, which is not easy, and tell us about the experience they've had. Tell us about the costs that they've incurred. Tell us about the delays that they've incurred in doing projects as a result of the challenging implementation. And more than three quarters of the folks that responded to our survey said that the interconnection process, that process of like trying to work with the utility and within the utilities rules to get their projects connected to the grid was a source of huge headaches and costs and delays uh, that a lot of it felt arbitrary, that it was difficult to get costs, like get cost estimates that were reasonable and uh, that were also like fixed. You know, they, the costs would change over time. There's a, you know, a balkanization of our energy markets in the sense that like each utility might have its own way of doing things. They can interpret the rules differently about like what kinds of stuff is required. There was an example of a installer in Arizona who had uh, done a couple of projects at a multifamily housing, uh, like an apartment building. And then they did another project and an identical is like an identical apartment building. And this time the utility was like, you need to do these disconnect switches, which will add tens of thousands of dollars. And they asked why. And there was like, well, you know, it's in the policy. And but but they were like, yeah, but two years ago, we built the same project and you said we didn't need them and nothing's changed since then. So the idea behind the survey and, and the report, which will hopefully either come out in, in late December or early January uh, 2022, is to say, can we document and help people understand that there is there is an implementation side of this idea behind policy that actually really matters a lot. And it also feeds into this broader question of utilities, the power that utilities have. So we know a lot of utilities don't care for rooftop solar and distributed solar. Uh, you know, they have a financial, and frankly, if I was a utility CEO, I probably wouldn't care for a lot either. My incentives aren't to dislike it. Uh, but that utility is also in control of this process that allows those third parties to participate in the market. They control the grid and they can do lots of, uh, unfortunately, like shady and they can make a lot of decisions. They have a lot of discretion about how policies are implemented. And because of their interests, they can do so in a way that uh, impacts the industry significantly. So we're hoping that our report will help to explain that there is this broader issue on the side of implementation that we need to be focused on and that it is it is part of this broader problem that we have of leaving our clean energy transition in the hands of companies who have a conflict of interest all the time in how it gets implemented. One of the examples uh, that you recently uh, published and uh, sort of brought to to light and one of, I think one of your local, your podcasts, you guys rebroadcast on the local energy rules podcast, but it was originally on your building local power podcast. I didn't realize you guys had such a broad network of podcasts until I really started looking into this conversation, but it's with Maine's state representative, Seth Barry, 
speaking to a bill to establish consumer-owned utilities, and uh, it's, I think it's referred to as Our Power Maine. Can you give me some insight into how this campaign is a model for grid innovation? Yeah, I hope that everybody in the country pays attention to what's going on in Maine around the electricity system. So they, a couple of utilities, Central Maine Power, and then there's another one, Versant or something, or maybe that's the bigger company that owns them. Uh, there's there's a mess of like conglomerates owning investor-owned utilities and, and that kind of thing. So they they these are the utilities that run the grid system, so the distribution and transmission network in Maine. They have some of the worst rankings in customer service in the entire country, some of the highest costs in the entire country. So you're talking about a situation in which these private companies that have no competition, they have all these captive customers, and they really suck at what they do. What Maine has done, which is what a lot of communities have done in this similar circumstance, you know, Winter Park, Florida, for example, city that had, uh, they had what they called the blinking clock pro- problem, which is the power was going out so frequently that people were always having to like reset their clocks. Uh, they said, what, well, what if we do a takeover? What if we let the public be in charge instead of this private company that's doing a bad job? But what's so exciting about the work in Maine and that Representative Barry talked about is that the idea was not just to take it over, to have it be a consumer-owned utility, uh, to have it be owned by the folks who are receiving service from it, uh, kind of like the rural electric cooperative model, but also to have it be open access. That the idea is let's buy the grid system away from this private company that is doing a really bad job with it. And let's operate it a little bit more like our interstate highway and road network, which is publicly funded and open to everybody. You know, like if you want to get into package delivery and compete with UPS and the Postal Service and DHL and FedEx and all those folks, you can do that. And you'll pay the same exact fees that anybody else would to use the roads. Like it is an open access network that allows us to do all sorts of stuff. You know, Uber and Lyft never could have done what they did if we didn't pay for roads for them to run those vehicles on, right? All of that system is set up to be in service of economic development, economic opportunity. Our grid, though, is like fundamentally restricted in most places. Even in places where we have electric competition, it's about the sales of electricity on a monopolized grid system. The grid itself is still owned by a company that has a conflict of interest about what happens on that grid. The rules about how that grid is operated are more or less written by state legislatures. But again, as we uncovered in our survey, open to a lot of discretion that allows the utilities to uh, manipulate and and to avoid letting it be used in the best way possible. I mean, there's a group out there called Mission Data. If you work in the clean energy industry at all, I strongly recommend you follow the work that they do. One of their challenges is to get consumers able to access their own data about how they use electricity. Like I am a consumer of an electric utility. They bill me for my electricity use and they won't even tell me about my energy use when they have that data, like from a smart meter on the hourly basis, on a minute, you know, minute by minute basis. This is the Mission Data Coalition? Yeah. What Maine is saying essentially is we recognize that there's so much opportunity for the grid to support innovation and entrepreneurial activity. You know, there's companies like Ohm Connect that are networking together folks with smart thermostats and solar and energy storage. There are companies that want to build community solar projects or just, you know, standalone batteries that, you know, combine with electric vehicle chargers, for example. All of these require access to be able to get on the grid and fair and open access rules to do that. And most utilities are fundamentally uninterested in providing that because they want to own and control what gets connected to the grid. 
And so uh, what Maine is doing, I think, is so important. What's fascinating, too, just a little development here is the legislature actually passed the bill through both of their houses to do this, and the governor vetoed it. So the Our Power Maine coalition is trying to get it on the ballot in 2022. But just recently, there was some exposure or something of another thing that the utilities had done that was terrible. And the governor was kind of like, oh, you know, had a public statement about how disappointed she was. And it's like, yeah, well, you were disappointed now, but why didn't you sign the stinking bill a couple of months ago that would have allowed the the communities to have an alternative? So at any rate, Maine, I think, is modeling how this can be done at a much larger scale. And I'm really excited for their ballot initiative next year. Uh, and that it will hopefully model how we can do this differently and do it in a way that we're not that we've rarely done before. We really don't, even when we have public power in the United States, it's not open access. Um, and so this is really, I think, unique and important. Fascinating. I love that. And it's a great way to put, sort of put a pin in the work that you guys are not only working on, but following and, and sort of elevating the spotlight around that the is so, so sorely needed because there are places in the country that are doing it right or at least attempting to, we just don't get to hear about them in the ways that we hear in the, you know, in the news cycles, uh, it doesn't bleed. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I've admired a lot with regard to your podcast in particular, you, uh, the Local Energy Rules podcast, you do what a lot of folks have asked that, that we do on Suncast, and that is you get a lot of the voices of the local community, the folks that are actively involved. You have a series called Voices of 100, uh, of 100%, rather, you've got a lot of conversations with local uh, municipal power authorities, with local uh, sort of uh, constituents at the government level and how they think about uh, providing local self-reliance. What did you start out the podcast with a mission for? What is it intended to be? I mean, I think you actually just described the mission as well as I could, which is that the idea was that there are a lot of these stories out there of communities trying innovative things uh, to advance clean energy and trying to do it in a way that really captures the economic benefits for the local community as well. Not just saying like, oh, we want more wind and solar, but how do we like, you know, really make this of a benefit to our community that really integrates the economic returns? I find in even like the local advocacy that I do that it's really hard to be first. It's really hard for an elected official to imagine trying something for the first time. But if you've heard of anybody else doing it, all of a sudden it becomes more real. And so I think a huge part of our work in local energy rules is just to help people understand what's real out there, what's possible. The stories are just amazing of what cities are trying to do, you know, collaborations with utilities, advocating for new policies, leveraging like solid waste fees to support clean energy financing. It's amazing the kinds of things that cities are figuring out how to do. Um, You know, Ithaca, New York, saying in nine years, we're going to decarbonize every building in the entire place. Uh, We're going to partner with Block Power. And I love that their sustainability director has, uh, I interviewed him just uh, in late November and he comes out of like a venture finance background. And I was like, man, we need more sustainability directors who understand financing because he's already lined up a hundred million dollars to actually do it. It's not just like a pledge. It's It's an action. And there's no reason other cities can't do the same thing. That's one part of it. And then the other part is really to bring together voices and thinking to help people understand how this energy system works and why we need to change the rules. Because unfortunately, a common theme in a lot of the stories we hear from local folks, even when they're doing amazing stuff is, man, we really had to fight to overcome 
policy A or policy B or the way the utilities cares about this thing. And so trying to highlight like, what is it that we need to focus on? What is the, the approach, the policies, the rules that would make this easier to do? And so, you know, that's, that's when I've been able to have those, some of those great conversations like Scott Hempling talking about the problem of utility mergers or um, just did an interview we'll publish uh, with Ari Pesco um, talking about, he has a great article called, Is the Utility Transmission Syndicate Forever? Um, basically about sort of the cartel nature of the way that we do transmission planning in the United States and how it hinders clean energy expansion. Something I'd never really understood before. I always, I always thought it was people who like, you know, were NIMBY or like, I don't want that power line in my backyard that stopped us from doing transmission. And what he says is, yeah. no, it's the same problem we have for distributed solar. It's the way that utilities have their incentives and the way that they want the system to be. You know, what I heard in your explanation of the audience and the intent, I want to make sure that folks really understand, because I look at podcasts as an education tool, not always just for myself. I often will share an episode that I find with someone that I know is trying to come up the learning curve quickly. And I think that you guys have done an, like yeoman's work for public officials. And I want to make sure that folks really hear what you said. So you said it's really hard to be first. And what I see true about Local Energy Rules podcast and the work that you've done is that you actually help tell the story of other public officials who've done it so that someone in Durham or someone in rural Iowa or, or Nebraska or Washington uh, or wherever the case may be, it might be like far West Texas. They don't have to feel like they're first because they can actually hear the stories of the mavericks who've gone before them in other municipalities. And, uh, and in many ways, I'm sure if they wanted to reach out to you and ILSR, you'd make those connections in real life. And that's the power of podcasting that right now I don't think is being leveraged in ways that it could be, you know, but I, I do want to just commend you and, and applaud the tremendous work you guys have done in a podcast that I think captures a segment of our industry that most of us as podcasters haven't been able to really reach. So thank you for that. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's, um, like I said, it's been really rewarding. And I think it's also, we consciously think about, can we not only tell the stories of what's happening, but do it at different scales? So like, here's a town of 2000, that's like a tourist town on the North shore of Lake Superior, or here's like a town in central Iowa, that's the state capital that's trying to wrestle with this. I mean, to help people understand it, like it happens at all levels, even tiny towns, even big towns, like we're all facing the same challenges and we all have different ways we can approach it. Do you have, I've been asked this a lot, so I apologize for the the seeming impossible task of uh, of picking your favorite children. But are there two or three episodes that perhaps exemplify the core message of uh, local energy rules, or that you would want folks to listen to if they only chose a couple? I really love the episode we did uh, with Timothy Denherder Thomas of Cooperative Energy Futures. His organization does cooperatively owned community solar. So it's kind of like the epitome of what we hope to see in the development of the industry is maximizing that economic benefit to a community. Uh, it's really intentional about how they both plan and develop projects, but also how they try to train and hire people from the community to do the work. I just think it's such a remarkable uh, ability to kind of integrate. And, and, and the other thing I just absolutely love about working with him, which I do in a number of different ways, is that he's also thinking through the bigger picture policy issues. Like he cares and understands about the conflicts of interest that the utility has. He's really focused on like, how do we make financing possible? So he's part of a broader network of community solar folks who are trying to work together to get financing for these like mission-driven 
community solar, solar projects uh, because, you know, finance people want you to bring together 50 megawatts at a time, right? And communities tend to do it like 100 kilowatts at a time. So how do you, how do you make that scale? I think he tells a great story. I really like the interview I did recently with Gene Sue from the Center for Biological Diversity. We talked a lot about antitrust. So there is this growing movement nationally to talk about the issue of monopoly power. Uh, Congress has a bill to break up tech companies like Amazon and Facebook that they passed out of the House that's in this now in front of the Senate. I think the missing conversation is about utility monopolies. And Gene and I had a great conversation about the way that the legal system could support us in confronting the behavior of utility companies in a way that's anti-competitive, even beyond the ways that we've already enshrined their monopoly power. So it ties into like the survey stuff that we've been doing about interconnection challenges for solar developers. But I just think it's so important for us to have that conversation about what is it about the structure of this market that is making it hard for us? And what are in the big picture do we need to do that really aligns? I mean, I hate to say it this way because it sounds so corny, but like align our industry and our market with, you know, core American values of like choice and competition and freedom. It's bizarre to me that like the solar panel is sort of the epitome of freedom and yet to get it connected and to be able to benefit from it, I have to work through a monopoly company. It is truly bizarre. So I, I think that that conversation is one of the more important ones that I've done. I guess the other one that I would pick out and has was sort of recently was I talked with uh, Mayor Mark Gamba from Milwaukee, Oregon. I partly like it, I think, just because it's another town called Milwaukee that's not in Wisconsin. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it confuses people. They're a suburb of Portland. But what they're doing is, you know, they've got a lot of the same things that other communities have done around clean energy, right? Like, let's put solar on public buildings. Let's do energy retrofits. Let's do LED lighting. But they're trying in a state that does not have community choice energy policy to create a partnership with the utility, which will allow them to do the same thing. So basically the utility is willing to negotiate with them about if you want to buy 100% renewable electricity for your entire community as a city to have that power of collective action, we will work with you to try to cut a deal so that you can do that. Even though it preserves the utility monopoly. So there's that caveat, right? But it's working within that system in a creative way. I think that just tells such a great story again of like, go out and ask for it. Like how many communities haven't even thought to ask their utility for how they could solve that problem or for that approach to that problem. And so I, to me, it's just the epitome of why we do this podcast is finding those unique stories of clever, motivated public officials, uh, community leaders in cities uh, to do potentially really remarkable things. That one was from the summer. I remember it from the Voices of 100 series. And if I'm not mistaken, that city declared a climate emergency, correct? They did. Yep. It's one of one of several now that have declared a climate emergency. And it's, I think that we're going to see more of this. Again, it's one of those examples where city leaders can look to Milwaukee, Oregon for what it looks like when you declare a climate emergency and leverage the power of that to enact policy that, that redirects focus. Yeah. I, I will have another episode actually coming up too that I'm excited about with folks in Brookline, Massachusetts. Um, oh, cool. I, ha- I had an unrecorded conversation with them recently. They were the first city outside of California to ban the use of gas and new connections, like new gas connections wow. to homes and businesses, uh, with a number of exceptions for you know chefs that like to cook over gas stoves and that kind of thing. <laughs> but there's this, what's going to be interesting about that story is how they got shot down by the state attorney general 
and they just kept going back at it and they found another way to do it. And then they finding another way to do it just in case that one, like they're just really resilient in their approach to saying, no, we want to be able to have a say about what our energy future looks like. And we don't think that it involves this aging and, you know, aging threat to our health and safety that we can do this in a better way. So it's um, very cool. It's going to be great. Very cool. I love, I love the work that you guys are doing. I think it's really remarkable. You know, one of the questions I usually ask, and I wanted to make sure I get this one from you is around how you got to where you are and is it where you wanted to go? What did you always think that you would become or do as a career, but never actually did? I still remember the first iPad or sorry, the first iPod that I bought, you could have Mm -hmm. that option to like laser etch it. Uh, you still can do that with, I think. Um, and I was dumb enough to think I'll never sell this thing. So I'm going to go ahead and put my mark on it. And it said John Farrell for president 2016. (laughs) 2016. 2016. Cause that was the first year I would be old enough to be eligible to be president of the United States. That's awesome. And so it all started with this government teacher in high school and just the enthusiasm he showed for politics and like what you could accomplish with it. And like, the grand themes of our political existence. Um, he's now actually in the legislature in Minnesota. So he went off and ran for office himself, but he just, I, I like lit a fire under me. And so like I was in like student government in college and I was on a neighborhood board um, right out of school in this very like white wealthy neighborhood in South Minneapolis. And here I was like the renter guy who was on the neighborhood board And I worked on some campaigns early on and I'd really been thinking like, oh, I want to run for office or whatever. And then, you know, I I got this job and found out that there was a lot of opportunity to like work on policy without having to run for office. And I got married and had kids and that's not terribly compatible with the kind of lifestyle that's required for campaigning. I've not ruled it out that I will still someday run for office. Uh, It's still there is like, this might be something I still want to do, uh, but I'm waiting at least at this point until my kids are old enough to no longer want to spend time with me so that if I'm out there stumping and knocking on doors that I'm doing it when nobody really cares where I'm at. That's fascinating. I would not have guessed John Farrell for president. It totally took me by surprise. I was like, where's he going with this uh, pod, with this uh, iPod story? And um, it it's wonderful to hear now the way that you tie that initial interest into the work that you're doing and how it actually has allowed you to have a sense of personal satisfaction and freedom to align those interests, but not follow necessarily that same path. I wonder in a similar vein, over time, we read things that do create particular moments of, uh, of insight and inspiration. I believe that readers are leaders and leaders are readers. And I'd like to know if there are any books that are particularly shaped the way that you think about life or work? Yeah, I love this question. Thank you so much for asking it. I have one that's sort of like narrow about sort of like how I work. And then another one that's sort of been really just a source of inspiration in the past, I guess, year since it's a new book about like helping me rethink about my approach to the work broadly and and to public life. The first one is, I think it's called Getting Things Done, or at least that the nature of the book is all about how to like, you know, do stuff. I remember reading it at a time, you know, he, the book goes into like how you create a system basically to accomplish things. Like how do you manage all of the stuff that's on your plate? And I read it, it was at least five years ago. It was at a time when I was, I had become the director of the energy democracy program at ILSR. I was sort of a co-director in training, if you will. There was 
we it's a it's been a rotating uh title and i was going to be stepping in for somebody and i was just feeling like i'm overwhelmed i don't know how to organize all the stuff that's coming through like email and everything else i loved that in the book you know at the time there was not a lot of technology for sorting things so there was like there was these parts about like filing systems and all this right. kind of stuff that just make me laugh in retrospect. So it was like, I already was trying to get rid of paper, but it was just really helpful to kind of sharpen my focus on like, how do I actually like take the stuff that's out there and decide what's important and do something useful with it? It didn't necessarily help me strategize how to spend my time, but it did help me understand once I decided how to spend my time, how to organize that and be successful in being really productive. And I'm I'm gratified that people that I work with say, we're always impressed with how much you can get done. Like that is... It that's cool. feels like I have a, I'm rewarded by my colleagues in having invested and re- read this book and, and tried to do that. So that's been, uh, that's, I, it's been, it was a transformational thing for me to kind of figure out how to like take control of the work time that I had, especially as a parent, because I can't really like expand into the evening if I want without sacrificing time with my kids or my family. So wanting to be effective when I have time to be effective is really important. You know, Getting Things Done was one of the first books that I read on productivity. And I always admire, candidly, when I meet someone who, like you and like my friend Peter Kelly, have put it into practice and have gotten feedback from others that you are more productive and, dare I say, organized. Uh, I think it says a lot about you know, the, the way that you think and your character and implementation. I've read Getting Things Done and, and countless other books on productivity. I don't know that I am any more productive for it, but at least I am able to organize my thoughts more clearly and prioritize myself uh, in a different way. And I think so it's interesting where you uh, bring in the organizational piece and said that you're not quite sure if it helps you prioritize. I'm the exact opposite. In fact, the lesson that I've gleaned from most of these is how to prioritize. And while it may look to many like I'm super disorganized, because I'm sure it does, it's a sense of prioritization that allows me to procrastinate on purpose on certain things, really focus on the things that need to get done. And I definitely can credit like you, David Allen, for helping me build that filter. Yeah, it was it was great. And it has been really, really helpful in understanding how to make the most of the time that I have. Oh, yes. The other book that has been really transformational for me in the past year is Heather McGee's book, The Sum of Us. I'll give a just a brief introduction in case people haven't read it. But the example that really like hits you in the face from that book is in the 1950s, we made a lot of collective public investment in things in this country. And the thing in particular that she highlights in this book are these sort of palatial community swimming pools that cities across the country had in the 50s that were these beautiful sort of public monuments and gathering spaces. But Black people were excluded from them. They were racially segregated. And when the laws started changing, when the civil rights laws started integrating, a lot of communities just bulldozed them, filled them in with dirt, covered them with grass, that it was more important to ruin this public resource than it was to share it with Black folks. And I think that the reason the book was so transformational for me was partly in understanding that like undercurrent of racial discontent or animus that has continued to unfortunately animate a lot of our politics. And even in the clean energy space, like the way that we deal with the historical harms that have been done and like how to talk about race in a way that doesn't immediately alienate people. But part of it is actually her personal journey because she worked for many years at Demos, a public policy organization, trying to advocate for change 
around economic policy. And she kept running into this wall of not understanding why people who have a vested interest in like the kinds of things that she wanted to advocate for, like, you know, money for childcare or, or for college would vote against it. And I think it's, you know, what, what happened for her was this realization of I'm going about this the wrong way. I am attacking the problem in the wrong way. I'm not understanding what is motivating people. And that's why I keep running into a wall. And to me, that journey mirrors a little bit my own experience in working for so long, advocating for community wind or small scale solar and feeling like, oh, this is always such an uphill struggle and a fight. And then having that moment, some folks that I talked, you know, people who taught me were like, you know, no, this is, you got to start looking into the utility issue, like the market structure, the monopoly, like it will explain to you why you keep having problems doing the work that you do. And so like in this book, where I think she so accurately describes the way that racial animus can be used by politicians to divide us successfully from doing things that are of big public benefit. I mean, like those pools, right? More solar, community solar would be a public benefit. There are so many policies that we've like flushed down the toilet because people would rather keep someone they see as undeserving from having it than doing it. And so I, you know, we face, I, I think the key is that I've learned about like, how do we approach this idea of like racial equity and how do we talk about it in a way that engages people productively? And also like, how do we correctly understand the power uh, structure in the space that we work and who makes decisions and how do we do that work effectively and strategically and actually understand like what's happening? Uh, her story, I think was really important to me in that. Thanks for sharing that. I actually had not heard of this book, so I appreciate you bringing it to my attention. It was long listed for National Book Award. It's an editor's uh, pick on Amazon, a New York Times bestseller, as one would expect. I want to read something actually from the Amazon description just to, uh, to highlight. It says, Heather McGee highlights racism as the common denominator of our most vexing public problems, the core dysfunction of democracy and constitutive of the spiritual and moral crisis that grip us all. And I think for anyone who over the last 18 plus months and maybe 18 plus years has been contemplating how not to just be not racist, but to be anti-racist, this looks like it would serve as a great, uh, a great place to start. Uh, I certainly am going to add this to my reading list and thank you for, for recommending it. And although you found the highlight or snippet there on Amazon, I do have to advocate as a member of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance to buy it from your local bookstore. And you can find that on IndieBound.com. Fantastic. John, do you have any particular uh, morning or even evening routine that you find gives you great leverage in your life? I remember talking to a friend with, about this recently, about sort of how he had been changing his routine. It was sort of gratifying to realize some of the practices that he had researched as being good for you were things that I was already doing. Um, one thing that I absolutely subscribe to is not touching anything related to work until I start my work day. So I don't read work emails. You know, I don't uh, read work stories or newsletters or anything. You know, usually like the first half hour of my day is just my son is getting ready for school and I'm down in the kitchen with him and I'm like helping him do that and having a little conversation and getting something to eat. I try to take time to do some sort of exercise or movement uh, that's more important as my body is aging. And I feel like if I don't do that, I like stiffen up and get uncomfortable during the day. And then I also just try to like take care of my space and leave time for doing that. So, you know, maybe there's like 
Sometimes it's just like chores around the house, doing some dishes, putting some dishes away, that kind of thing as in the working from home life. Uh, but when I was at, while well, working out of the office, you know, making sure my plants are watered, uh, just getting a glass of water, you know, setting up the space before I started to make it feel like I could be focused and engaged in it. You know, at home, I'm wearing slippers because I'm working in the basement and keeping my feet warm has actually been surprisingly helpful to be like focusing on my work. So I can attest to that, actually. I, during this podcast interview, I put socks on and last night I got a pair of slippers delivered that I've been coveting for probably six months as they go into the winter, the winter weather here in the South. So I can identify. Yeah, it's um, yeah. So taking care of a lot of those different things. Uh, the other thing I would add, and I do this at night before I go to bed is I have a journal and sometimes I just do what I call a mind dump where I literally just write down all the things that I've been on my mind that I'm thinking of, because I have found at my age, there are so many things as a parent, as a co-director of an organization, as a director of a national policy initiative, I'm thinking about a hundred different things all the time. And sometimes what I just need to do is like empty them out of my brain onto paper and be like, okay, I don't have to think about that anymore because it's right here if I need it. I can pick that journal up tomorrow and look it over and be like, okay, here are the things that I actually need to do. But I just can't recommend that enough. Uh, It's just such a cathartic experience to like just write down the stuff that's stuck in your head and feel like it's somewhere else and you can process it in a different way when it's written down. I've been doing a similar practice. I'll record it into Otter, one of the products that, or the you know, software that we use for transcriptions. I'll record it there. Then I'll send a link to it, of it to my team and say, hey, these are all the things that are on my mind. If you can help me with any of these, please do. <laughs> so, but it's a, it's a, I mean, no surprise to anyone around me. The way that I process it is by talking about it, not writing it. And I wonder if, um, if writing it might help me. I just sometimes feel limited by the constraint of the time it's going to take me to write it versus talking it into dictation. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I will say the one thing that I've learned from uh, having done therapy from time to time that I thought was interesting is they were saying like, if you are struggling with something like emotionally, like some anxiety or something like that, that it actually activates a different part of your brain. Once you've written it down and you read it, you're going, you move it from like the emotional center of your brain to like the logic and processing side of your brain. So it like sort of breaks that problematic mental practice that you might have about something that you're struggling with. So I don't always actually follow that advice. I wish that I did, but it's always lodged there kind of nagging me like, hey, if this thing's bothering you, maybe you should write it down. That's really good. And I mean, it's part of the core reason why goal setting gurus say, write it down. Uh, You know, what gets measured gets managed, what gets uh, managed gets done. Well, John, I feel like I continue to have this conversation for a while. But time constraints as they are, we should probably bring this to a close. Where, if folks were so inclined, you be found? Where do you like to engage with folks most? I probably most often engage with folks either through email, and I'm always happy to uh, get connected with folks. I may not respond in a very timely fashion, but I do try to get back to everybody who is reaching out with with something that's related to my work. Um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, John F. Farrell, and I love to chat with folks there. Um, I do try to not just like throw ideas out there and drop them, but really engage with people who want to be thoughtful and respectful and exchange ideas. Um, I've had some great stuff that started on Twitter and ended up in podcast interviews and vice versa. Um, No way. That's cool. uh, Which has been great. And then, you know, if folks just want to see the work that I do and find the content that we produce at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. It's at ILSR.org. 
Fantastic. How can the Suncast audience help? Oh, I didn't expect that question. I think that the thing that is most useful is to think about that opportunity for collective action so that in the work that you're doing, think about who it is that you could be working with that maybe you haven't connected with. Where is that conversation, that opportunity for collaboration, that opportunity for an interesting conversation? One of the things that I've seen in all of the interviews and conversations we've done is that, you know, there's these folks at the city, at a lot of cities who are interested in really doing stuff around clean energy, uh, who love the idea of solar energy, but maybe just don't really know how to do it. And it might just be one conversation away from like, hey, we've got a couple projects that the city would be interested in doing with solar and your company could do it for us. Uh, but we're trying to struggle with like, how do we help low-income folks do it? Can you help us think through that? So yeah, I mean, I think there's business opportunities. I think there's collaboration opportunities. And the people that do this nonprofit work, that do this public work, need the help of people who are on the ground trying to figure it all out. You know, we're trying to struggle through and, and identify answers as well. So I think there's probably a lot of wisdom in your audience that, uh, that we need in trying to figure out how these things work. Well, John, let's end today, as you always do, with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Gosh, I think all the stuff that I can imagine somebody else is tracking out there. There are so many incredible people that work in this clean energy space. I really think that we're going to see uh, a continued, maybe not dramatic, but a continued and significant shift towards these more public and consumer-owned utilities more local control over energy systems. I really do think we're going to reach a turning point in this idea of confronting utility monopoly where things will structurally change. If nothing else, because there's going to be too many great businesses out there that are trying to do stuff who finally realize, hey, we need to sign on to this idea of restructuring the way that the market works. So it's coming about little by little. You know, the stuff in California adds a little bit. The fights over solar add a little bit. Uh, somewhere the dominoes are going to start to fall. Maybe it's Maine. Maybe it's that ballot initiative in Maine. Maybe it's another city in Iowa or something that does it. But I, I think we're going to see that shift uh, and that it's going to enable a lot of amazing things to happen in the clean energy space. John Farrell is not only the host of Local Energy Rules podcast, but he's the director of energy democracy at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. John, it is truly a pleasure to finally have you here on Suncast. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Nico. It was wonderful to talk to you. All right, Solar Warrior, that is a wrap on this conversation. And I know know that you are left asking questions and wanting answers and wondering, how can I get more of this John Farrell fellow? He is so insightful. Well, if you just mosey on over to mysuncast.com, that is where you, my fellow Philomath, can find resources and highlights from this discussion, along with the social media links, book recommendations, podcast links, and more on our blog. It's easy. You just click on the episodes button and that'll take you to our blog. You may have to scroll down if you're listening to this a little while later, or you could scroll all the way to the bottom of the page and type in John Farrell in the search bar. Since I know you're going to be hopping online, I'd love it if you would take a moment and just share this episode with someone else. Maybe do it on LinkedIn as well so you could tag John and I. It's a real treat when we get to hear from you and learn how this episode resonated with you. Who do you think needs to hear this story today? What part of it resonated with you the most? Let us know on LinkedIn. And I know also John is very active on Twitter. Okay, next week is going to be a fun one. On Tuesday, we've got my friend Alex Williams coming back to talk about, if you didn't catch his other episode a couple of weeks ago, he's going to come back on and he's talking all about 
his experience at Tony Robbins Unleash the Power Within. Slightly unconventional episode for Suncast, but it nonetheless is a very insightful dive into how one entrepreneur that I admire is priming himself for success. And on Thursday, on Thursday, we get to hear from Michael Burrs of NZINC. Now, this is someone you are not going to want to miss. He's a literal space scientist, astrophysicist, developer of rockets. <laughs> yep, a rocket scientist. And he gives me one of the best book recommendations for 2022, which was actually in 2021 at the time of recording. But it is a gem of an interview. So you'll want to come back next week for Michael Burrs. And thanks once again to our sponsors for helping make this content free to you. You can learn more about the sponsors and their offers at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Now, that's also where you could learn how to partner with us and reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like you. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, solar warrior. It's half the battle.